Hello, and welcome to another episode of Beginning Teacher Wednesdays. I'm your host, Jen Hawkins, and this week I am sitting down with our guest, Victoria Thompson, to discuss deprogramming educational norms. I hope that everyone has had a good week so far. We have almost reached the end of February, which means spring is right around the corner, and there is so much to look forward to in the spring. I know that this year is going to look a lot different compared to other years where we look forward to big end of year festivities and uh, getting to go outside with our students and just really enjoy everything that spring has to offer. But while it will look different, I still hold hope uh, that as we enter the spring, we will get a fresh breath of air and be able to continue moving forward and doing what's right for all of our students. I get to sit down this week with Victoria Thompson. Victoria is a STEM integration transformation coach and a consultant for Ignite EdTech. She has been in education for five years and began her journey teaching fifth and sixth grade math in Somerville, South Carolina. After completing her master's degree in curriculum and instruction, she moved to the Seattle, Washington area in 2018, where her career has pivoted to focusing on STEM integration in schools K-12 mathematics instruction with research on decolonizing mathematics curriculum for teachers and learners, creating inclusive math environments, and using technology to bridge equity gaps in math education. She is a certified Microsoft Innovative Educator, a National Geographic Educator, an Apple Educator, an Inspirational Educator, and an Educational Technology Consultant for tech companies in the Seattle area. I really enjoyed this conversation with Victoria. Um, if you don't follow her on Twitter, you need to. She has so many great resources. And she also gives really intense reviews on the free bread that is given at restaurants um, when dining out. And so while those tweets have very much slowed down during this pandemic, we still look forward to them. <laughs> Today we're going to dive into what deprogramming educational norms means and what it looks like to make sure that our uh, classrooms and especially our STEM programs are equitable and creating opportunities for all of our students. So without any further ado, um, grab, find somewhere comfortable to sit, grab a notebook because you're going to want to take notes, and grab your beverage of choice because we're going to sit down for the next 45 minutes with Victoria Thompson. Hey guys, this week I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Papa Murphy's of Raleigh. They are constantly giving back to the community uh, and supporting educators and schools and community members in different ways. This month, if you bring a children's book to any of the Wake County Papa Murphy's locations, uh, they will hook you up with some free cookie dough. How awesome is that? These books are going to the Wake Up and Read Project for Wake County Public Schools. So it's a great way to help your community and get free cookie dough. Papa Murphy's is also looking for people to join their Dinner Circle Club. What is the Dinner Circle Club? Guys, I have listeners who sit by every week anxiously waiting to hear what code and promos Papa Murphy's is going to drop. I am giving you an insider scoop. All you need to do is join this dinner club and they're going to text you their most recent promos, savings, specials right to your phone. And guess what, guys? If you text the word circle, C-I-R-C-L-E, to 90421, you will not only get all these amazing discounts and special offers, but you will also get free cookie dough just for signing up. So 
everyone I know right now, every educator I know could benefit from some cookie dough. Don't know what you're going to do with yourself on a Friday, Saturday night. Go ahead, sign up for their dinner club. Again, text CIRCLE to 90421 and get yourself that free cookie dough for the weekend. Do you want to go ahead and just kind of tell us your story? Tell us how you got into teaching. So I guess if I were to start, I've always been really passionate about education and, you know, just creating experiences for students. And I remember doing, I mean, you're from New Jersey, you know, we do read across America, right? And I grew up in Marlton, you grew up in Mount Laurel and, you know, we're kind of voluntold to go to schools and participate with kids. But I feel like that was my moment where I was like, okay, I can kind of see myself doing this. So went to College of Charleston um, in Charleston, South Carolina, go Cougars, Mm -hmm. Uh, graduated 2015 with a degree in elementary education. But what I found was that it was kind of difficult. um, And and I don't know, Jen, if you taught in South Carolina, but it was really hard for me to find a job as like an elementary educator. Mm -hmm. A lot of the jobs were for like first grade kindergarten, which is not my wheelhouse, or middle school. Uh, which was also not really my wheelhouse (laughs) at the time, right? So my degree was actually in grades two through six. So I was like, okay, maybe if I can find fifth or sixth, and I love like fourth, fifth, sixth. I love those grades. Right. I started out teaching sixth grade science at a school in Somerville, South Carolina. Um, And then that kind of transitioned into a fifth and sixth grade, like math and science role which I really, really loved. And I just loved teaching, right? Like I loved those kids. I loved that topic matter. I thought that it was just the perfect age. Well, when we moved to the Seattle area um, and because of my wife's job, she's in the Air Force. She's about to transition out. But at the time, you know, when the Air Force says you have to move, you have to move. Yeah. <laughs> so moved in January and I knew it was going to be very difficult for me to find a job. So I uh, decided to instead of doing the teaching thing, kind of see if I could leverage my tech skills. And that's how I became a full-time tech consultant. And although I really liked it, I just don't think that it was a good fit long-term. Like I'm an educator first and a marketer second, Mm -hmm. and they wanted me to be marketer first, educator second. So um, I started consulting on the back burner, but decided to go back in schools because that's where my heart really was. Um, So I worked at a school for about a year and then left because I did not feel safe. Um, it was a moment where the head of schools was saying racist things and you know, very shifty things about you know, different movements going on in the United States. And again, didn't feel safe, right? Yeah. So that's how I ended up literally at the job that I have now, which was founded um, you know, by a woman who was fed up by these types of things. Mm-hmm. And it's so revolutionary because our executive team is all black women, which is almost unheard of, mm-hmm. right? Like my organization is majority people of color. Like we're a black tech firm, (laughs) you know, like we're a black (laughs) tech equity firm. And we have other, of course, races and identities, but I just love how we all come together for the kids. In my specific job, I'm a STEM integration transformation coach. Uh, So it's quite a long title. I just kind of refer to myself as a STEM coach. But what I do is I go into my school site and I uplift STEM in the school. Right. So it's all about equity. It's all about project based learning as a vehicle for equity. Mm. It's all about engagement practices. It's all about making sure that students feel welcome. It's all about making sure that we're collaborating as best as we can. Right. So I really try my best to go into schools and collaborate with teachers and make it an effort. So that way they don't feel alone. Mm. And also, of course, advancing my organization's mission. 
Uh, so that's how I got into teaching. But that's also kind of where I am now too. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of talked about some of the hiccups that happened in those beginning years and as, you know, as you've kind of made your journey through, but talk to me a little bit about what were some of the hardest lessons you had to learn and what were some of the biggest wins that you had in the classroom? Whoo, hardest lessons I had to learn. <laughs> um, to be completely honest, and this is me being extremely candid right now, just because someone's older than you doesn't mean that they are an expert and that they know everything. Preach. So if I were to think about my first year of teaching, I was put with a woman who was older than me, but it was only her second year of teaching. Teaching was kind of a second chance career for her. And like not knocking second chance careers, I love it, love it, love it, love it, right? Like, and she was a great teacher, but she wasn't a great collaborator. Mm. So we had a lot of moments together during PLCs, during meetings where things would be said and it was almost like assumed knowledge and I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And then sometimes when I would go back and I would ask, then I would be the bad guy or maybe I would get questioned when really like I was 21, you know, in my first year of teaching and I literally had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And I learned to lean on folks that didn't necessarily have the know-how in like the pedagogy, mm. but the know-how in collaboration. And I feel like in teaching, these are like three different things, right? So you've got someone that doesn't really know how to teach 100% golden, but they're wonderful collaborators and they're great at sharing their knowledge. Mm -hmm. Then you have the opposite of that where they're not great at collaborating, right? But they're great at what they do. Yep. And that's the hardest nut to crack because... <laughs> You know, you want to tap into their knowledge and sometimes they feel uncomfortable talking to you. Right. You know, maybe it's just not their wheelhouse. Like, I get it. But then the golden goose is when you find somebody that does both. And mm -hmm. I was able to find someone. Her name is Jane Cross and she and I still talk. And she was my golden goose. She had been teaching for 30 plus years and she was willing to share. And she was just an amazing person in that space. And she was a mentor for me when my mentor wasn't there for me. Yep. Right. Um, so that was definitely one of my biggest lessons where just because you're assigned to somebody doesn't mean they have to be your person. Mm -hmm. And, and if you find somebody else and that's totally okay, you can have informal mentorship. You can still learn from somebody. You know, that was one of my biggest lessons because I always try to learn whenever I can, but when I'm not getting what I need, I'm very vocal about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that some folks like that I was so vocal about it, but I'm like, you know, if you're assigning this person as a mentor and they're not mentoring, yeah, like shoulder shrug, then what are they doing here, right? Um, so, so that was definitely one of my moments. One of my biggest wins my first year of teaching and, and even my second year of teaching is just connecting with families and establishing that communication style. And because I started out in a middle school environment, right, like fifth or sixth grade, I did have moments where I'm kind of thinking, okay, is this overreach, right? If I message parents or, you know, is this overreach if I say this to a kid? Because in middle school, we're kind of at that gradual release of responsibility where we're not calling parents as much, you know, or we're not, you know, contacting families. But what we are doing is establishing for students that we're here for you, we trust you to make decisions, but also giving them just enough slip where if something happens, we can still contact parents. Yeah. So one of my biggest wins I feel in that space was my communication style. And I kind of worked on like a two strikes you're out. So not three, but two. First was a mistake. Second, I've already warned you. 
three, we got to get other people involved. And, and, I, and I don't care who it has to be. If it's a family member, if it's a guidance counselor, right? If it's the principal, right. if it's, you know, like another teacher that maybe we can collaborate together to make sure that we're all on the same page. I want to make sure that you're successful in this environment. And of course, you know, as you know, middle school is tricky because they're trying to figure out themselves. They're trying to figure out how they fit in. Mm -hmm. you know, their parents are beginning to lessen you know, the grip a little bit. So I was, I feel like walking that line between what do I do? What do I say? And then also how do I make sure that the kids know that they're being supported? Yeah. And my communication style was that two strikes here out. Um, like not out completely, of course, they were always <laughs> in my circle, but you know, letting them know that they are like, even though you're older, you're still going to be held accountable. And it might not be a clip chart, you know, it might not be like a letter home, like how we might do in elementary, but in middle school, we still contact families because we want them to know ways that you can improve and also ways that you are a highlight or spotlight in this classroom. Yeah, I think so big in middle school and my experience teaching middle school is teaching kids. Um, I think a lot of times they get to that age where they are striving for independence, um, but yeah. teaching them that success comes when we have support systems and teams and really working as a team with those families um, to support their student and showing the students the benefit of that. I also really like what you said about age, right? right. Um, something at least for me that's, it's a point of embarrassment and shame and, and uh, something I don't really like to draw attention to very often is my age um, because it's brought into question so often. Damn. So to say I'm a second year assistant principal at year seven um, is something that raises a lot of eyebrows or, you know, even just substitutes coming in the building when I worked in middle school would tell me I was late to class. Um, and, and it was like, I actually know I'm the administrative intern. So mm -hmm. I think I think it's a big conversation that we need to go more in depth into in education because in a lot of career fields, the faster you move up at a younger age, it's rewarded and it's almost seen as a point of pride um, and that you have the knowledge and the ability to move up in your career at such a young age. But I think a lot of times in education that's frowned upon and said like almost you didn't do your time the right way. Um, and so I think a big thing for beginning teachers to learn is to, to move at your own pace, not the pace that you think others are holding you to. Right. And whenever, and you, you bring up, I mean, so many excellent points, right, in that area where I kind of feel some type of way whenever folks are like, I mean, I get maybe five years, right, like five years would be good for you to move into an administrative role or maybe like a coaching role, right, like Right. Some sort of administrative role, because I've been under administrators where they might have had one or two years and it mm -hmm. shows. And that's really tough to navigate as a teacher, because then, I mean, you're sometimes working with teachers that have more experience than the administrator. Right. And it becomes a bit of a power struggle. I see that in other fields and also working very heavily in other fields. Like the tension is still there. But in education, it's a bit of a different dichotomy because we have this very unique opportunity to be teaching children, mm -hmm. whereas in other professions, it might be putting out a product, right? Or maybe putting out a new software, or maybe you're building like a building or a site, right? Like not that these things don't have merit, but because we have the extra weight of being with children, yep. 
there is an additional component there where folks feel like the credentials need to be lathered on super thick. And I think that you bring up a really good point where it's not about where folks think you need to be. It's where you think you need to be, mm -hmm. you know? So like with this coaching role, I mean, I applied on a whim. Um, I had a really bad meeting, you know, with the school that I was at and I wrote about it in my blog, but he was saying a bunch of, he meeting the head of schools, racist stuff, right? Like anti-black stuff. And as a black woman, I didn't feel safe. Right. Uh, so, so I had a bunch of choice words for that head of schools. And then I, you know, literally slammed my laptop down, opened it up, you know, opened up Indeed, and this job notification came up. And I applied, and then within five minutes, I got the, hey, come interview for this job. And then by the end of the following week, I had another role. And for me, this was me applying on a whim. And I, I was doubting myself the whole time. Yeah. I was like, I just don't know if I have enough experience, right? Like, no, I've hopped around a bit, you know, South Carolina, Washington, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. But I think that if we look at administrative roles, our work and our character speaks for ourselves. And even if you have minimal experience, or even if you just want to take the leap, take it. Because these roles just don't come up nearly as often as people think. Like when I was working full time in tech, people were getting promoted here, there and everywhere. Coaching roles and AP and principal roles really don't come up nearly as much as people think to the point where my wife is like, well, are you, you know, you're going to get your admin cert. I'm like, I mean, I am, but I also don't know if I'm going to get a job within our immediate vicinity, right? Because I really don't know if a principal role is going to come up. And even if they do have an opening, whether or not I'm going to get it. So we have to think critically about our skill sets and how we want to grow. And there's no shame in wanting to grow. And also don't let anybody make you feel some type of way about wanting to move up and onward, right? Mm -hmm. One of my best friends back in South Carolina was an instructional coach for 10 years and she just went back to the classroom because she really wanted to be back with kids, right? So there's variance in these different types of roles. Make of it what you will and take every opportunity that comes to you because you just never know what'll happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So your passion right now really lies in the idea of deprogramming educational norms. So Correct. yes, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to, I get really excited about that. Yes. Well, yeah. So we're going to kind of just start at base level because all of our listeners are coming from different areas with different levels of understanding. So can we just start with defining exactly for our listeners what that means? And then maybe some examples of what this does or does not look like. Yes, so if I were to think about deprogramming educational norms, what I think specifically is deprogramming what we have been conditioned to view as normal. Now this kind of has its pluses and its minuses, right? Because some of the normal things I think kind of keep in with the status quo, right? Like they keep folks listening, blah, blah, blah. But the other part of it is that it's harmful for students. So if I were to give a specific example, um, educational norm, learning about black people during Black History Month right? That is an educational norm that I feel like we in the United States have grown up with. Um, should we only learn about Black people during Black History Month? Absolutely not, right? We know that this can walk alongside our academic curriculum all the time. But when I was growing up, and I'm 27, like I only learned about folks who are Black during Black History Month. I also think about Women's History Month. I really only learned about women 
during Women's History Month. And I didn't grow up in, in the middle of nowhere. I grew up in Marlton, New Jersey, which is a suburb of Philadelphia where there's a lot of you know high profile folks and also a lot of black people. So for me, it was kind of a shock where I had this dichotomy where you know, growing up with parents who are very educated, right? They both have degrees. My dad has his master's, you know, works for the government. My mom works in healthcare. And then also being in a very pro-Black household, learning these things on my own with my parents and then coming to school where that was so minimized. Right. That was a bit of a shock to me, right? So that's one norm. Another norm that we can think of if we're talking larger scale, like behavioral expectational, is the concept of class rules. So the majority of teachers in the United States are white women. And not to discount the work that white women do, right? I have a lot of white female friends that do great work in classrooms, but I look at their class rules and I think, oh my goodness, this is not okay, right? It doesn't take cultural competency into account. It's also a rule, which means that there's a power imbalance between mm -hmm. you and the student. It means that there's no agreement going on there. Right, so they just kind of plaster these rules, right? Like no talking, <laughs> um, like look at me when I speak. The one that drives me crazy is feet on the floor, back straight. Yes, yeah, feet on the floor, but oh, oh, and also slant, right? Slant. Yes, yes. Slant is one of them. When I see it, I'm like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe you have them on your rules, right? Because it doesn't one get student input, and they don't even have the chance to say yes or no because a rule means that a person of power makes it and the lesser person agrees. And there's already a power imbalance in schools where for students, it's kind of a zero sum game, unless you have adults that are wanting to collaborate with the kids. And then the other part of this, of course, is like, okay, so if something happens where a student breaks an agreement or breaks a rule, what's gonna happen? The emphasis is always on the rule and never the follow up. Yep. So if I think specifically about just like deprogramming those norms, I mean, I grew up with class rules, right? Like this is something that I grew up with and I just kind of accepted. I was like, yeah, you know, teacher makes rules, like it's all good. And then even all the way up to college, I learned you make class rules. Yep. You know, this is me in a collegiate environment. We are programmed to believe these things. This is what it looks like. So if I'm thinking of what it does not look like, here's what it looks like on my end. Mm -hmm. It looks like collectivist thought, meaning that the teacher has no preconceived notions of kids when they come into the room. Mm. You can have kind of ideas, like I remember when I was in South Carolina, I mean, I wanted to know who had an IEP 504. Again, federal law, that makes sense, right? I also wanted to know who had behavioral issues to the point where I might have to call on folks, you know, that needed that. I had quite a few where I had to call even first day of school. Right. But it's because I have those established connections where I was able to do that. Um, so that was a thing. So there are some things where I feel like folks need to know about. But then the other part of it is like, okay, well, then what can we do to leverage community collaboration and make sure that this is an environment where everybody is heard and valued. So collectivist thought, right, collaborative thought. If I'm making rules or maybe if I'm making agreements, do kids have a say? Mm. They also have a say in who they want to learn about and what they want to learn. Of course, with curriculum, we get what we get. But, 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 but what we get what we get doesn't mean that we teach what is there. Yep. It also means that we can leverage diverse perspectives, right? Use different platforms. Like we just make it a more collaborative space for our children. So when I deprogram those norms, 
what that means is everything I feel like I've been taught to believe while it has validation mm -hmm. it only has validation in spaces that are let's be honest like white middle class right yep so if we think outside of those boxes then we make experiences better for our kids and I even think you know teaching in South Carolina so kind of weird I was at like a very white middle class school mm -hmm. and I had a friend and she and I are still friends but she was at a like majority student of color school and I'm black and she's white right and the martyrdom that came out of her mouth every day I was like girl check yourself right like you are not a martyr right you are not a decent person just because you teach students of color and she even had a moment where she was like well, I just don't think that social studies or science should be taught before sixth grade because my kids just can't do it. And we had a big <laughs> fallout because of that. And again, that, you know, those are those educational norms, right? Like she grew up white middle class and she's kind of delegating those norms onto her kids. So when her kids showed up in fifth grade needing assistance and, and they weren't behind, they just needed a little bit of help. But she's like, oh, well, because you're not exactly where I need you to be, then we're going to redo this. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. This is not what's happening right now. Thankfully, she was open to collaboration and feedback. So she and I were able to work through that. But that was a norm that she had to get through. Yeah. And I also think about how this works for white female teachers in particular. You know, that was just one of my plans. And I've had quite a few where they're like, oh, well, because this kid doesn't understand, well, you know, maybe they might need a referral for an IEP 504. Uh, well, not really, right? Is it misbehavior or is it misunderstanding? Yep. You know, like, what does that look like in our educational spaces? And then how can we make it so that way we're honoring the student, but also if red flags come up, we're not demeaning them at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I think you know, one of the things that is so important that I feel like I say all the time is, is this classroom is not your classroom. And I think that's a mindset that a lot of teachers enter the classroom um, with of like, it's my decorations and my rules and my layout. And mm -hmm. it's almost this like badge of honor. Like I did my four years, I earned this degree and now I get to do it my oh. way. I earned my time student teaching I had to do it someone else's way for six months, a year, whatever, and now it's mine. And yes. the biggest thing I tell people is stop. You're in a rented space and that space belongs to your students and mm -hmm. they need to dictate what works for them. Your furniture should be laid out how it works for your kids and how they communicate it works. Your class norms should be decided by your students, not you. I did an interview last week with Janelle Henderson. She is doing some phenomenal work out in Louisville, Kentucky. She's doing work about having kids develop the uh, mm -hmm. content and pacing of curriculum in grades as young as second grade. And so we had this really big conversation about um, bringing in topics and people um, and ideas that our kids need to learn about and not in silos, not Black History Month, not Women's History Month, but need to learn about continually and that they're interested in. And how do we do this while still meeting the expectations that are had upon us as, you know, educational systems and in this bureaucracy that we're all kind of in. 
Um, and so I think that that connects so well with what you were saying of if you're doing, if you're teaching the same thing this year that you taught last year, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, you're doing something wrong completely. Yeah. And you're right where it should not operate in a silo or in a vacuum. It has to operate alongside our academic content and it can be done. It can be done. We just have to take folks over the hurdle. That way it goes from the impossible to the possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what happens is the, you know, I think beginning teachers are, you're in a great place, guys, because mm -hmm. the, the more used to doing something one way you get, the harder it gets to break those habits. And I think one of the unfortunate things that I have seen is when teaching becomes a habit. When you've taught the same book or novel for six years, and it's not on grade level, and it has nothing to do with anything your kids are interested in but you're doing it because you bought the teacher pay teacher six years ago and you're gonna get the most money out of it oh yes then oh, you need to stop mad. yes so right now beginning teachers you have the opportunity to you know work take note of what you're doing this year write it down reflect say this went well this didn't go well these are my students opinions on it this is where they thought i could have added this that and the other Ask your kids at the end of every unit, when you do an exit ticket or assessment, throw some questions on there to see how they feel about it and switch it up next year. But do not continually do things the same way year after year. Exactly, yeah. I completely agree, completely agree. So you work as a STEM coach and often this is an area in schools where we see a lot of inequities um, start right. to, to happen is in STEM programs. So, how can beginning teachers create systems that allow all students to find success in this area of STEM? How I would approach this as a beginning teacher is honestly understanding what STEM is. Mm. And, and I speak this from the heart and I'll speak from my experience when I was a first year teacher and also a second year teacher. So this was at the same school, right? So first and second year teacher. My first year teaching, my principal, was a wonderful leader, I feel like, but didn't really have a vision for where the school was supposed to go yeah. and also where she wanted it to be. So the, my first year teaching, again, I was just getting my bearings, first year, survival, blah, blah, blah. Well, then my second year pops up and she says, well, we're, you know, well, we, we, we're a STEAM school. And I'm like, are, are we though, right? <laughs> like, do, do you know what STEAM is, right? Like, do you know what STEM is? And for y'all that are listening, STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math. And then STEAM is science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. And I've also heard STREAM pop up a couple of times. Hmm. STREAM being science, technology, reading, engineering, arts, and math, which I'm kind of like wishy-washy on. I'm like, are, are we just kind of getting into all subjects? I was going to say, now that's everything. Right. But it is what it is, right? So towards the end of my first year teaching, my principal was very much like, okay, we're a STEAM school, but just said it. And there was no follow-up. Um, and, and then suddenly we get a makerspace, but the makerspace is in somebody's closet, <laughs> right? And then suddenly we have like a, you know, maker fair, but it wasn't a maker fair, right? Yeah. Like, so maker fair, if you know, Jen, it's actually like a trademarked thing. Mm, so as a school, like, yeah, so as a school, you can actually have like a maker fair and it's very much like steam, STEM, like stream focused, but I don't know what happened during that time. And also, <laughs> so I was not about to ask questions, but 
you know, we somehow went from Maker Faire to an expo. Mm. And the expo was pretty all right, right? Like students showcase their things. But I mean, talk about a letdown. Because mm. if we're talking about the initiatives that we have, right? And then suddenly we're like, okay, well, well then we're this kind of school. And then we have these things, but then we don't. And then my second year teaching, it was more of the same. We got a bit of a larger maker space in the library or media center, whatever you want to call it. Um, but other than that, there was no actionable follow-up from our principal about what it meant to actually be like a STEM or STEAM school. So when you ask that question, right, like inequities, I'm thinking about leadership. And this is also me coming from like, you know, me being a coach and also me being an instructional leader at my school. Inequities come from folks not knowing and also not understanding. And also when I was in the tech world, you know, in marketing, I had folks that were like, well, the school has a math class, isn't that STEM? Mm. And then I would be the person that said, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> Leave the room right now, right? <laughs> but, you know, they didn't have the context. And I also think of a lot of the administrators and folks I work with now, sometimes they might not know. So inequities come from folks not knowing, first mm. and foremost. In order for us to bridge these inequities, we have to have the context. So if I'm thinking STEM, STEAM, STREAM, we first have to figure out a mission as to how this relates to our specific school. Mm -hmm. So if I think of my school in particular, my school is a, not only a STEM school, but it's a partnership and it's also a PBL school. So I walk in every day knowing what I'm doing. Yep. There are schools that I cannot say the same for whether or not I've worked there or I haven't. So if you're a school where you're looking at STEM, STEAM, STREAM, all of the above, what's your end game? You know, what do you want for the school to be? Because from my experience, the goal that my principal had was a very different goal from the reality. It was almost as if she was like, okay, STEM, like we got it. And then we were all kind of scratching our heads like, oh, why do you want to stand for that? <laughs> we didn't get any of that. And that was problematic. Yeah. So that's where I would start. If, if you want to start, who is the audience? What do you want to do? And how do you carry that out? Then if I think about inequities, then we get a little bit deeper. Tech, right? Do kids have access to internet, Wi-Fi devices? Can they log on and do they know what's going on? Do we have a lot of devices per kid? And also how many devices are given per kid? And I can even speak to this from the adult perspective. My wife's in nursing school right now. And there's a woman in her class where she actually joins class through her phone, right? Because her daughter is on her device because she's in remote learning and that's yep. the only device they have. And she is being dinged points because she's on her phone and she doesn't have her camera on because of bandwidth. That's an equity issue, like yep. a legitimate equity issue and that sucks and that's a problem, right? So are we making sure that all voices are honored and valued within the bandwidth that we give and the constraints that we have? And then if we're also thinking about success for students, putting a plan in place for teachers that honor teacher feedback. And I'm so big on this because I hate, 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 and I hated it when I was in South Carolina, when I would receive a piece of information or maybe a piece of a document or something, and they're like, oh, well, this was already vetted through such and such. Well, then I wasn't a part of that, yeah. right? And then even now as my team, we, you know, we do have a leadership team from the school, but we always vet the information through the teachers as well. 
I never leverage one teacher's piece of information over another. Everybody's voice is valuable. So if I want to be a STEM school, and if I want to have a science fair, but I also want to make sure that it's equitable, I'm making sure that I go through all of my teachers. And I might make a document as an instructional leader or an administrator, but I delegate it out to everybody in the room, that way they can give their feedback. And then we have multiple iterations of this to make sure that everybody is heard. And if I were to close out for this question, like I wanna make sure that everybody is heard and valued because I've been in spaces where even if I am in a position to speak, maybe only certain voices are heard and that doesn't make me feel good. So if I were to kind of like recoup, I wanna make sure that every single person is heard, valued, honored, it's how we get progress because then it's not just a certain subset of folks that are talking. It's everybody that's talking. Yeah. I, I don't even have anything to add because it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And I think I always have kind of holdups with these buzzwords and education. Right. And I, I feel like STEM was one of those where people made it a buzzword and it, and it isn't right and and that's what i think happens a lot of times in education is there are a subset of people who are doing it with fidelity and making an impact and really changing and molding the minds of children and then someone else sees it and says oh well i can do it a little bit more efficiently and leave something off and someone says i can do it more efficiently and leave something off and right. then someone's just like i want the poster and or I just want to put it in my school's Twitter handle, you know, in the bio. And all of a sudden we've lost the, the meat, the root of what this phenomenal program was um, because we're not taking time to do things with fidelity. We're just out there collecting as many buzzwords for our school as we can. Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel that. Um, one of the things that a few beginning teachers have reached out to me um, about, and I kind of want to, talk a little bit about it is there are so many tools floating around right now technology wise due to the pandemic um they're free <laughs> i think i get an e i think i get at least seven emails a day from a tech company so um, <laughs> talking about having a culturally responsive classroom and meeting yeah. the needs of our students and utilizing their voices what technology tools do you recommend for teachers who are looking to support that in their room. Yeah, so I always start with saying find your five because I think anything other than five just gets too ridiculous and then we all get chaotic and we all scream, right? And I've been in situations with teachers, especially now helping them where, oh, well, this tool isn't working well for me, but you know, my co-teacher is using it or, or you know, like the team is using this, but it's not working for me. You have a voice and you can speak up and you can say, this is good for you, but it's not for me. Because at the end of the day, when your kids come to you, they are coming to you. And it might not be perfect, right? People might not be happy, but I would never endorse for a teacher to use a platform just because their other folks are using it, period, right? So when I think about platforms, I say find your five. Doesn't have to be exactly five, right? But just find five that you are comfortable with that you specifically like to use. If I think about the five that I use that are not only culturally responsive, but also help across a multitude of levels, I mean, whoo, I have a lot, but here are my top five. I would say that Buncee is one of them. 
I love Buncee. So Buncee is like a creation tool. I refer to it as PowerPoint on steroids. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because, you know, folks can level up. You can add QR codes, you can add audio, you know, you can add lots of different links and things like that. But what I love about Buncee is that they have something called an ideas lab where you can literally go on and you can co-op somebody else's lesson or idea and change it to whatever you want to have. So if you're a teacher in a pinch and if you want a trusted resource, Buncee is wonderful. I love Buncee. So Buncee is one of them. And also Buncee is very responsive on social media. Like their CEO is like all, like all in it. <laughs> Marie, Marie is wonderful. She is a great person. Ida, who I think manages their social media and like a couple of like other partner stuff. I mean, they're very like hands on the ground. And if your school is also Microsoft integrated, Buncee is integrated with Microsoft Teams. So that's like a really good like, hey, it's already there, which is super cool. Uh, so Buncee is one of them. I would also say Pear Deck. And full disclosure, I'm a Pear Deck super fan. I've been using Pear Deck since 2016. I love it so much. Literally, Jen, like, so like when we started the conversation and Courtney's like, we got stuff from Pear Deck. We got stuff from Pear Deck. Okay? <laughs> so like, we've got like the little pear, right? We've got shirts, we've got all this stuff. I love Pear Deck. I've been using Pear Deck for about four years now. And when I think about Pear Deck, I think about student engagement, but I also think about the power of synchronous versus asynchronous work. Mm. And if you're assigning homework asynchronously, yeah. or maybe if you want a bit of a switch, I think Pear Deck just offers that wonderful, you know, moment where you're like, okay, I can have these meaningful moments with my students where they can respond and I can take note of them, but also it's asynchronous so they can work at their own pace. There's mm. something powerful there, you know, where I feel like we don't get in a traditional environment where I can keep track of my students, but also give them the chance to respond but also give them the chance to give feedback, right? And Pear Deck has a lot of stuff like SEL, math, social studies, like stuff for pre-K through two. They just have so many really cool things there. And, and, and then Pear Deck, I think, is one of those companies that's for teachers by teachers. Mm. I also want to give a shout out to them because they're the only ed tech company that I know of to date that has created an anti-racist statement. Mm. And their commitment to anti-racism and equity. And I think that that needs to be called out explicitly. Absolutely. And I do not know of any ed tech company. And like, wow. I, I have extensive ed tech background. I do not know of any ed tech company that has done the same. Mm. So I would just love to give kudos to them because I hope that others follow suit. Yep. So we have Pear Deck. We have Buncee. So if I'm just thinking of generic tools that I use across the board, OneNote with Immersive Reader has been great for my students that are English language learners and mm. just also with helping teachers with the picture dictionary and just getting students acclimated and learning the tools. Yeah. I think that OneNote is great and, and I use it for my personal organization. Uh, but also if I think about helping students, I think that OneNote has a lot to offer, you know, that other platforms just don't. If I'm thinking about sustained inquiry, Padlet is great. Mm. But again, Padlet only lets you have three for free. Um, so I've learned a bit of a clever hack where I like, you know, I delete the Padlet and then I make a new one and then it doesn't count it, right? Take that as you will, because I'm not going to pay for a subscription, but I do like how <laughs> Padlet has the opportunity for folks to continue to add. And if I'm doing an activity or like a group, you know, with my teachers where it's sustained inquiry, 
I love that Padlet gives me the chance to keep building on those skills and those ideas. And those are really, really cool. And again, these are all STEM focused because it's sustained inquiry, right? It's the scientific method. It's process. Yep. You know, it's like going through these things where you're like, okay, do my students understand? If they don't, let's come back. All of these tools leverage the opportunity for folks to come back and reflect, which I love. And then if I were to pick like my last or like my fifth, um, I would just go ahead and say, you know, just regular tools that are within Microsoft. Specifically, mm -hmm. I'm thinking Word, right? I'm thinking PowerPoint. Like, I love designer and PowerPoint. I love that I can type something and then it will make magic for me because <laughs> I'm not a graphic designer, so they can do that for me. But I just love what they're doing right now with regard to design and also um, artificial intelligence. Yeah. And I, like, it's just super cool to see that from a coach perspective. I mean, all of them are great. I would agree with all of them. We, we're using Google this year um, and yeah, we're a Google suite district, which, you know, I think we've been Google suite for the past seven years. And so for our kids, it was a very natural transition to continually keep using Google suite during this time. Um, but it's also been amazing to see how much some of these ed tech companies uh, have evolved and changed and improved in such a short amount of time to meet the needs of teachers and students. Agreed, yeah. So hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed, yeah. we'll start transitioning back into school buildings. So we now have all these new skills and I think I want to say technology awareness almost of mm -hmm apps and programs and things that are out there that can support our students learning how do you how would you envision how would you suggest that a teacher could transition back into classrooms while still using tech um, that is meeting the needs of their students um, and utilizing it in a way that's appropriate and meaningful right well that's a good question so if i'm kind of thinking about transitioning back into schools right it's not going to be perfect um, and it's also going to be bumpy and mm -hmm. those things kind of go hand in hand. So even if I might be using these five tools ish right with my kids, when I think about going back to schools, those five might go down to three. And I'm saying this because when we went into virtual learning, it was a transition for everybody and people are still honestly trying to figure it out. And then if we go back, it's going to be another adjustment. So I think that the focus should be less on centering the teacher and more on centering the student. Because if I have more adjustment on the hands of my kids, then that means that I'm making sure that their needs are being met, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that I use all the five that I described. But when we go back, I use Pear Deck, Buncee, and I use OneNote. I use three out of the five that I mentioned, right? It might be overwhelming at first, yeah. But this gradual release into it will show, okay, hey, yes, we use these tools during remote learning, but we're also going to use them right now. Mm. And I'm trying to ease you into this space. So making it gradual instead of being like, like a bam, here's what we're using, I think is really, really good. Now, when it comes to the topic of like utilizing all of the tech tools, we're going to get there eventually. Um, but that's not part of being culturally responsive, right? Like if I were to just 
smack my kids with all this like, hey, here's like 20 tech tools. No one's gonna be happy. I'm gonna right. be getting calls from parents, right? Teachers are gonna be yelling at me, <laughs> you know, as an instructional coach. It just is what it is, right? So if we ease folks in easy and just be like, okay, here, here's one. Do you remember this from when we were, were you know, in virtual learning? Here's two. You know, do you remember these two? Here's three. And, and just getting them acclimated to that point. Because, he, because my honest opinion is that when we go face-to-face, -face, the two biggest hurdles are that, one, we're going to have to navigate being in a face-to-face -face environment again after being away from each other for nine-plus months. And then the second hurdle is going to be, we've used all of these tools remotely. How are they going to factor in in a face-to-face -face environment? Because I use Pear Deck, Buncee, OneNote. I use all those things before we went remote. But the way that I use them remotely was different than how I use them face-to-face. -face. And yep. kids are going to have to get adjusted to that. You know, and it just kind of is what it is and it sucks, but <laughs> you know, easing them in bit by bit instead of just all at once is the best method of discourse moving forward. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is using technology at home and remotely is a lot different than using it in school. And, mm -hmm. and just, just the environment has different impacts, not good or not bad, right? Some kids are more distracted at home. You have your pets at home, you have your parents in the kitchen, you have all, all these things going on. And some of our kids are really concentrated right now and are about to go into school and be heavily distracted, right? Yeah. I've got a couple that are graduating early because they've been so focused during this time. You yeah. Know? It's very tale of two cities. So, and so I think you have to take that in mind too, of like, as a teacher, not looking at your kids and being like, come on, we did this all last year. We use this app all last year. A lot of it is again, meeting the needs of your students and listening to them. Um, some of these kids maybe had the program mastered at home. You're going to put them at school, sit them next to their best friend. I know that was me and they're not going to get anything done for 30 minutes until they forget everything that they need to do. <laughs> so I think that's also important to keep in mind is just because you've used it doesn't mean it's going to look the same or kids are going to have the same successes or struggles as they did in this virtual time. Right. Nor should you as the educator believe that the results are going to be the same. You know, it's going to be a different situation. It's going to be a different scenario and you have to be aware of that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to end with our lovely rapid fire questions. Um, so what is your before school routine? All right. So my day starts at 8 a.m. So that's when my work hours begin. Uh, but my actual day starts at 5. So I get up at five and I make my tea and I make a big breakfast. I make a full breakfast every morning and that's eggs, it's bacon, you know, it's toast, it's pancakes, all that stuff. So that's kind of my morning routine. Um, so usually I'll just kind of have Victoria time from five to seven. And then seven is when my wife wakes up. So, you know, she and I will have like our morning time, right? You know, she'll talk about her day. I'll talk about mine. But then I, you know, will set my calendar for the day, my email, all of that stuff. And then at eight o'clock is when I hit the ground running. So that's when I'm, you know, meeting with teachers, going to classrooms, all of that stuff. But my before school routine, I mean, it's kind of sounds selfish. It's like Victoria time, right? Yeah. But, you know, I make my breakfast, I make my tea. I really like having some time for myself before I start my day. Because yeah. truth be told, I don't know when my day is going to end. 
Right. You know, like sometimes my day ends at four, right? Because my working hours are eight to four. So sometimes I'm lucky and it ends right at four. Sometimes it ends at eight if I have like a family Zoom night, you know, or, or, or like maybe if I'm answering questions from admin. So I like my morning time because it gives me peace and it gives me calming and it just gives me time to relax. Awesome. What's one word the students you work with would use to describe you? Animated. What's your favorite school supply? Ooh, pens. Pens or post-its? Pens or post-its. That's been a popular one lately, post-its. What is your favorite mantra or saying when things get tough? Okay, so I'm actually going to take this from my school and my principal because she has one that I love. It's called no pressure, no diamonds. Mm. So this means that especially in this specific arena that we're in right now with remote learning, we don't create great things unless it's under the pressure that we're currently under, right? So no pressure, no diamonds means great things don't come unless we do them under the ridiculous constraints that we're under. So it's kind of a positive spin, right, on what's going on. But I love it because I think it's so true, right? Yep. Diamonds don't come unless there's pressure from coal. Absolutely. And then we don't create greatness unless we are underneath of the pressure that we have. Absolutely. And what's yeah. one thing you wish someone had told you as a beginning teacher? One thing I wish that someone would have told me, um, I, I, I might need to expand on this a little bit, but you don't have to take the first job that comes to you. Mm. And if somebody uh, treats you poorly, then you don't need to stay. Yep. Right. Your sanity and your mental health and your health period is more important than any job security that you can have. And I know that in some places it can be tough, right? Like when I was in South Carolina, you know, especially in my district, jobs were hard to come by. But at the end of the day, if you feel like you're being mistreated, you can leave and you can go somewhere else that values you. That's and that's cool. a piece of information that I take everywhere I go with me. And that's why I work where I work. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Victoria, what are you working on? How can people get in touch with you? Yes, so I have my website where I just kind of keep up with my musings, my blog, you know, sessions and seminars that I'm holding. I recently gave a talk to Khan College, which was really exciting. Um, and I'm also working with quite a few other folks, just building up curriculum with culturally responsive teaching, and then also anti-racist teaching, which is wonderful. And I'm also holding a podcast with Melody McAllister and Eileen Winokur, where we talk about the implementation of these things. And maybe if you're a new teacher, if you're kind of weary about just start to finish, right, implementation to end, you know, we kind of walk you through those steps. So that's what I'm working on specifically, which is very exciting. Uh, folks can hear about that and get in touch with me, primarily on Twitter, which is where I'm the most active. So you can find me at Victoria the Tech. Uh, that's Tech, T-E-C-H. Um, and also my website is linked there. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. That's my full name, Victoria Rose Thompson. Um, and also on email at victoriarosethompson at gmail.com. But I'm very friendly. So if y'all want to reach out, collaborate, if you have any questions, anything like that, um, I'm more than welcome to help, collaborate, and bounce ideas off of you. Awesome. So reach out if you want. I am more than happy to <laughs> <laughs> awesome sauce. Victoria, thank you so, so much. It was so nice to finally connect and shoot this. Yes, thank you so much. This was wonderful. I have it, folks. Another great episode. Um, I learned so much. And this conversation has really made me think more about the programs that we're choosing to put in schools, the programs and resources that we're giving to our students. And if we're truly doing them with fidelity or if we're just doing them to say we've done them, 
um, but they're not benefiting all of our students. So I hope that this episode gave you something to think about moving forward and something that you can bring into your classroom. We're going to end this just like we normally end school with a couple of announcements. Uh, The first one being that we will do a chat on this episode next week, March 3rd. I can't believe it's March already. At 8 p.m. Eastern time at hashtag BTW podcast chat. I know for a fact there will be prizes next week, so make sure you are on that chat. Uh, Our other announcements are that we are currently doing a giveaway um, of a book for an upcoming guest uh, for an upcoming episode. So make sure that you're following along on Twitter so that you can enter that competition and win. We also have a Facebook group, Beginning Teacher Wednesdays podcast, where we talk about our giveaways, ask for input on upcoming episodes, etc. Make sure that you uh, join. And we've had a lot of requests for people asking to just have a central website where all of our information is held. So we finally have a website. If you go to www.beginningteacherpodcast.com, we have everything there from links to every single episode with guests, resources, um, information to connect with all of our guests that we've had on the show, information about the show, Uh, links to all of our social media as well as you can get all of your merch right there t-shirts sweatshirts long sleeve shirts it's all there for you to buy you can go ahead and check that out a lot of people have also been asking if we're making our decals available to buy they are all there as well so beginningteacherpodcast.com make sure you check it out Other than that, I hope you have an amazing week. I hope that you keep moving forward. You've got this. We are headed into spring, guys. I cannot tell you how much that will help uh, as we enter the final part of this school year. So continue connecting, learning, exploring together. I'll see you next time.